If you will join me this morning in Esther chapter 8. Esther chapter 8, the title of our sermon is Salvation and Revenge. You can find our text on page 414 in the blue ESV Bibles. Our keywords for our worshipers and training are Jews, edict, and holiday. And if you have not been with us, we have been walking through the book of Esther. We are uh, very close to the end, uh, but we've been following this wonderful story through the Old Testament, all of its twists and turns and cliffhangers, and uh, we have been amazed at what God has shown us. This morning we are going to begin in chapter 8, and we will walk all the way through about the middle of chapter 9. So we have a lot to cover this morning, so leave your Bibles open as uh, we go through the text. Now, if you're like me, maybe you've wondered at some point what it would be like to be a king or to be a part of a royal family. Now, I know some of you have probably binge-watched The Crown on Netflix, and so you have thought about that over the last uh, few months or weeks recently. It's crossed your mind a time or two. Well, I've certainly thought about what it would be like. Sometimes I think it would be neat. It could be, it could be fun. It could be exhilarating. It could be meaningful. Hopefully, uh, one could be useful in that sort of position to the people of the kingdom. Other times, I think it could be exceedingly tiring and irritating and stressful depending on what was set up around you, I suppose. Everything you do is lived under the microscope of the world. Now, there have been many kings and queens throughout history. Some have been great. Some have been awful. But what would you do if you were the king or the queen even for a day? How would you govern The Roman emperor, Commodus, from the second century, he believed that he was the incarnation of Hercules, and he liked to spend his time showing off his supposed fighting prowess in the arena, so he had his people bring exotic animals into the arena for him to fight. However, he stood in an elevated tower when he fought them. He also fought injured soldiers with disabilities, most of the time amputees, Whenever he had one of those fights, of course, he always won, and then he charged massive fees to the city of Rome for risking his life to give them the pleasure of watching their king be triumphant in battle. Maybe you've heard of King Farouk of Egypt. He was king during World War II. He was nicknamed a stomach with a head because he liked to eat so much. As a king, this might very well be my very own weakness, access to the greatest foods in all the world. Farouk's regular diet consisted of caviar, lobster, very expensive chocolate, and 600 oysters per week were flown in directly from Copenhagen. Farouk's gluttony was not limited to food. He was also given the nickname the Thief of Cairo because even though he was the king, he was the ruler of one of the most wealthy nations in the world, he was something of a kleptomaniac. He once stole a sword from the Shah of Iran. He stole a pocket watch from Winston Churchill. He even pickpocketed his own impoverished subjects. It's unsurprising that he died while eating. He collapsed into a plate of his own food. In the 16th century, in China, the Zegdi emperor was emperor having taken the throne at the age of 14. And as far as anyone could tell, he remained 14 for the rest of his life. Zegdi liked to play games of make-believe instead of, you know, running a giant empire that he was in charge of. 
He built a whole fake city out of blocks on the imperial grounds, and he liked to pretend that he was a shopkeeper, and all of the subjects on the imperial grounds were forced to go along with it. Occasionally, he pretended he was the general, and he arranged raiding parties with his army and dressed them all in silk. Weirder still, he invented for himself an alter ego. He had a name that he gave himself, and he would order pointless raids on other nations to the exasperation of his government, and all of them had to pretend that he wasn't just a talking emperor in a wig. Eventually, he died in very predictable fashion. He got really drunk and fell out of his boat during a fishing trip. Well, I hope that if any of us were king or queen for a day or for a few years, this would not be our legacy. There are many stories like this. It's actually quite difficult to go through the history of the world and find kings or queens that had very noble Uh, histories behind them that did the right thing across the board. Sometimes things happen, and when people are put into these positions, sometimes unknowingly they're given a lot of power to rule over others along with the nation's entire sum of wealth. It quickly goes to their heads, and they do some outrageous things. This hasn't always been the example, but Uh, for the most part, as you look through history, this is what we see. And we see it in the Bible. We see it in the writings of historians. Some like Plato and Socrates and Aristotle have warned against uh, these types of things happening if a nation is not structured well. Some like Nietzsche have tried to uh, to offer compelling arguments for despotism. Others sought to do all they could to eliminate it. But there's a general agreement across the board that when people are given untold amounts of power, it changes them. Just think of yourself. Just think of yourself. If you were given all of the power, if you were made the king or the queen of America, even for a day, what would you do? Not what would you tell people you would do so you look good, but what would you actually do? Well, Queen Esther was already the queen of Persia. We've seen that all throughout, but for the most part, she didn't really have anything going for her in terms of calling the shots within the kingdom. That was all left to her husband, the king Ahasuerus, King Xerxes. And for the most part, he left all of the decision-making, as we've seen, up to all of those who surrounded him, men like Haman, men who had large egos, men who wanted the king's position, men who, in the end, we saw last week, a man who was hanged because of his plot to kill the queen's people, the Jews. His his plot, his attempt to kill Mordecai, the queen's cousin, the man who saved the king from the murder plot that was given earlier by two of his eunuchs. This morning in our text, things continue to shift. They continue to shift to the favor of Esther and Mordecai and the Jews. In essence... What ends up happening is Esther and Mordecai become the rulers of Persia because King Ahasuerus has seemingly become allergic to taking responsibility. So if you were a Jew and there were people in the empire all around you who, were, who used to be in charge and, and they were a part of this plot to kill you just yesterday when your previous enemy told them that they could do so, what would you do to them? 
If you were in charge, what would you say about those who were just yesterday your enemies and what would be their fate? Well, we'll see what Esther and Mordecai decide to do this morning. Now, since we're taking such a large section of Scripture today, we're going to do it a bit differently than I usually do. Instead of organizing it under specific headings, we're going to just read through the text and pause along the way as we make comment, and we will deal with our implications or our application at the end this morning. So let's get into the text. We'll begin in chapter 8 and verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now, this was a very common practice when anyone was ever defeated by the crown, once they were destroyed, all that they had was given over to the crown. So in this case, for Haman, it was uh, the king handing over to Esther all that was his, and Esther gave it over to Mordecai. The house, the land, the goods, the servants, the money, everything that he had stored up for himself and his family, that if you recall back in chapter 6, he was bragging about, that was all his, and he felt so wonderful and powerful because of it. Now it belonged to Mordecai and Esther. All of it was hers, already added to what was no doubt a large allowance from the king. Likewise, at this point, we see what sort of seems like a fulfillment of what was going on back in chapter 6, when Mordecai was being paraded through the streets by Haman on the back of the king's horse, wearing the king's robe, wearing a crown, and Haman declaring, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. It was poetic. It was, it was prophetic in a, a big way. And now we have the king handing over the signet ring once again, not to Haman, but to Mordecai. And Ahasuerus tells Mordecai, do whatever you want. In essence, he's telling Mordecai, you can function as me. You function effectively as a king. I will be over here partying if you have any questions. That's how Ahasuerus has always run his kingdom, isn't it? So now Mordecai is the king's right-hand man, his cousin, the queen, his adopted daughter. All of their secrets are out in the open. They're able to function out in the open. He has the ability to do as he pleases. And we see a dramatic reversal here between Mordecai and Haman coming to completion. Haman was the king's right-hand man. Haman was the one everyone bowed to. Haman was the one who had his own estate. Haman held the king's signet ring. Haman built the gallows for Mordecai to be hanged. But now Mordecai is the king's right-hand man. Mordecai had Haman's old estate. Mordecai had the signet ring. Mordecai was being bowed down to and honored in the streets. Haman hung in the gallows that he made for Mordecai. But as significant as this is for Mordecai, as significant as this is for Esther, it is yet still very important and significant for the Jewish people on the whole. But the problem is that the edict given by Haman to destroy all of the Jews still remained. The edict was given to all of the Persian Empire to destroy the Jews in the twelfth month, and the time was ticking. There was nothing yet done about it. And if nothing was done, they would be slaughtered. Look at verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. 
She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Now remember before when the queen was made to go before King Ahasuerus, she was filled with fear? She assumed it was the end of her life. She did all that she could to make herself presentable for the king. She dressed as beautiful as she could. She came in such humility, waiting outside the door to see the scepter lowered to her that she could win the king's favor. But now what do we see? Now we see Esther falling at his feet, weeping and pleading with him. She's moved beyond much of the formality. She's, she's desperate to see the right thing happen for her people. And yet, even still, she goes in this lengthy statement to win the king's favor. If it please the king, if I find favor in the king's sight, and if this thing seems right before the king, if I, if I am beautiful enough for the king, if I'm pleasing to your eyes... Notice two of the things she mentions are about uh, the Jews being acceptable to the king and what she is asking from him, and the other two are about her herself and whether or not she is acceptable. Now, in reality, we understand these things are inextricably linked to one another, but as far as the king is concerned, it was about Esther. Notice, she doesn't appeal to any sense of right and wrong. She doesn't appeal to what is just or unjust. Those categories didn't really exist for Ahasuerus. He didn't care when he was making a decision. They didn't register on his scales of worthy consideration. And so, in her brilliant way, Esther appeals to his self-interest and to her own personal beauty, his weakness. In essence, she's saying, husband, if you really love me, you will do this for me. If you really care about... Now, I know this is sounding familiar to some of you. If you really care about me, you will care about my people. And if they're destroyed, I will become undone. You don't want that to happen to me, do you? It's a bold statement from Esther, for sure. But the king's first response is not very satisfying. Look at verse 7. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. It's as he's saying, as if he's saying, My goodness, you two, I, I had Haman killed. I gave him your household. I put Mordecai in charge of the kingdom. I've given Esther all that she could possibly want or need. What else do you want? but they're going to keep pushing until this matter of the Jews is settled one way or another. Another, the king goes on in verse 8, but you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. What's going on here? Well, remember King Ahasuerus, even though he is king, cannot technically undo his previous edict. 
The law of the Medes and the Persians was irrevocable, so there had to be another way for this to be done. What he didn't have a problem with was Mordecai and Esther issuing a contradictory edict, which would also become irrevocable because it would be stamped with his ring. It's a messy situation, but now they could play the game of the best edict wins in the streets. And we get the sense in the text that he is encouraging them to do this, to go ahead and write a contradiction. Of course, this is silly of him. I think as the king of the most powerful empire in the world at the time, he certainly could have revoked his decree, but that's what it was, and that would have been the end of the story. He really wasn't that smart. He really wasn't that much of a caring man. It was far easier to have others do what, he want, what they wanted to do for him. And that is really the point. Tie the empire up into all of this crazy, bureaucratic knot. And so in the end, nothing is ultimately done in terms of that first edict being fulfilled. So now Mordecai has all of the authority. It's all the authority that Haman once had. He could do whatever was necessary to counteract the previous edict. And of course, Mordecai didn't waste a single second. Look at verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews, who were in every city, to gather and defend their lives, to destroy to kill and to annihilate any armed force or any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree to every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Well, Ahasuerus gave Mordecai the opportunity to write a new edict, and so Mordecai does so. And this edict, wouldn't you know it, was similar in language to the one issued previously by Haman. Now we can tell the difference between the two. The main difference, it seems... In terms of how it's delivered is this time it is on swift horses that can make it to the end of the nation because the day was drawing near. They needed to get it there as quickly as possible. Now, I must admit to you up front, I have struggled with this text all week through parts of this. There are things going on here that are good. There are things that are right. There are things that are appropriate. Notice Mordecai gives the Jews the right to defend themselves. He tells them they may preserve their lives to destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them. That's verse 11. They have the right of self-defense. And standing alone as a standard, that is fine. All human beings have that God-given right and responsibility. It's the next bit that on its own is admittedly difficult. 
He goes on to say that they ought to take out not only those who were armed against them, but also the women and children as well, and plunder all their goods. And all of this is to happen on the same day that was set aside for the Jews to be annihilated. He goes on in verse 13 to say that the Jews are to be prepared to take vengeance. They're to exact retribution for the attempt to destroy the Jews in accordance with Haman's edict. In essence, the idea is that for all of those who stood with Haman, they too would fall like Haman. And in terms of the big picture of God's covenant and the, and, and the Amalekites being the enemies of God and his people, we understand. We understand what God is up to here. Remember when, the, when, the Jew, when God commanded them to take out all the Amalekites and they didn't do that? They failed to fulfill God's command, and as a result, they had lifelong enemies when Saul didn't do what he was supposed to do. Notice here, the edict given to Mordecai reads a lot like what God commanded of the Jews after the exodus. So I think we can understand that in God's big picture plan, in God's covenant plan, this was a part of his promise to protect his people and to punish his enemies, and specifically to punish the Amalekites, the Agagites. Nevertheless, on the human level, on the man-to-man level, this seems excessive. It's filled with revenge. It's filled with bloodlust. Because clearly this wasn't just about defensive action. This was about to become very much an offensive action on the part of the Jews. Look at verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king commanded and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So the response to all of this by the Jews, of course, was absolute elation. They were understandably glad that they weren't going to be destroyed and that their queen was one of them and that Mordecai, now the second in charge, was one of them and they were going to watch over them and protect their lives. And notice what happens all of a sudden among the pagans. It's ironic, isn't it, that Esther had to overcome this great fear that she had for her life. And she did that by hiding her identity as a Jew. And now all of a sudden, she's out as a Jew. And what do the pagans want to do? They want to identify themselves as Jews. It's amazing, isn't it? Overnight, we had a revelation. And now, we're Jews. We, We are one of you. It's telling, isn't it? It's just like us. It's like all of mankind to drive all of our behaviors by the perceptions of what the future holds rather than what the reality of today is. And it's on both sides of the story. We saw it with the Jews. We see it with all of the pagans. The actual fortunes of the Jews never actually changed, did they? Their livelihoods were in danger, but they were never actually threatened or ruined in the end by Haman's edict. 
There was no instant repercussion. There was no one killed up to this point. Their lives were the same. Their futures, for all intents and purposes, really hadn't changed in the end because things would simply continue as they always had. And yet they had thought that their lives were threatened by Haman, and so they fasted, they mourned, they never prayed, as far as we can tell. And now that they feel the threat has lifted, they respond with joy, they have a party, and we'll see next week they even start their own holiday as a result of it. But if you think about the reality, nothing changed. It was as it always had been. The edict was lifted, but their lives were the same, and yet everything was spun up because of their fear of the future. And and for the pagans, they have the exact opposite response. Everything was fine, all was well, we're living this great life, but now the Jews are in control, our lives are in danger. Quick, tell them you're a Jew. We are such a weak and feeble people in the face of danger. Well, let's look into chapter 9. In verse 1, now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on that very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents had helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed Parashatatha and Dalphon and Aspha and Poratha and Adalia and Eridatha and Paramashtha and Eresia and Eridai and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now, the victory of the Jews was nothing short of comprehensive. We're given a lot of detail to point out how far-reaching all of this was. All of the Persian officials and the royal bureaucrats, they supported the Jews all of a sudden. Why? Because they were fearful of Mordecai. His position in the kingdom ensured success of his edict. And as a result, the Jews were free to slaughter and destroy all of their enemies just as their enemies had planned to do to them. In Susa alone, the center of power and empire, they killed 500 men in the first day. And the detail just goes to show the extent of the opposition of the Jews, their position of influence and power and their ability to take over. Included in the slaughter were all ten of Haman's sons. And it doesn't, it doesn't strike us like it would have struck the Jewish leaders of, uh, in Esther's day. What this means to them is this is truly the end of the Agagites. This is the end of the enmity between the Jews and the people of Haman. 
This was to be taken care of in the days of Saul. Saul didn't do it, and as a result of that, they had Haman, and they had to put up with Haman and all of his family and all of his evil deeds, but now they are gone. It's so significant, we see every name listed. It's as if to say, look, every one of them, we didn't leave any one of them out. All of their names are right here. And after this, not a single one of Haman's seed remained to carry out all of his unholy pursuits in the lives of the Jews. He lost his sons, he lost his position, he lost his entire state, all of the stuff that he was boasting about previously, and in the end, he loses his own life. What a pitiful place for Haman to be. Look at verse 11. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? In other words, look at the slaughter just right here. Can you imagine how many others have been put to death all across the empire? But instead of being dismayed by this, the king seems rather impressed. He's marveling at the fact that so many have fallen in such a short amount of time, and he offers something more to Esther. What else does she want? Look at verse 12. Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it pleases the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. Remember, the first edict was to happen on a single day, right? Now she's asking for an additional day. And on top of that, she says, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now, think about what is going on here. They're killing all their enemies, not just for one day, but Esther wants a second day. The king gives her her wish. It's all yours, Esther, but make sure you catch what's going on here. Haman's sons were killed on the first day. We saw that, right? But now, what else does she want? Hang them in the gallows. This is not veggie tales. <laughs> the killing here wasn't enough. They had to be hung for everyone to see after they were killed, that these men were being disgraced. The household of Haman had been defeated. They are cursed. Those who are hung on a tree are the cursed. This was common practice. We saw it in Joshua chapter 8 and chapter 10. The same sort of thing happened. They would kill their enemies, and they would hang them in the city center for all to see. Look at verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on their plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who lived in the rural towns, 
Hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Now, before we write off Esther and Mordecai completely here as bloodthirsty and vengeful and power-hungry people, there is a silver lining here that we should point to. Even though Mordecai's edict had permitted the taking of all of the plunder, it's mentioned three times. I hope you noticed three different times as we read that they did not lay their hands on the plunder. That was a normal practice in warfare. I beat you, and therefore all of your stuff is mine. But the Jews refrained from enriching themselves. Why? Many would suggest that it's because in their eyes, this wasn't just retribution for the edict. This wasn't just an act of revenge. This wasn't just some act of retaliation because their enemies were willing to carry out Haman's command. But they saw this as a holy war. They saw this as fulfilling what had yet to be fulfilled from the days of Saul. So with that being the case, they didn't believe that all of the spoils were theirs to take. And if that was the case, if that's what's being thought of and how it's being carried out, all of the failures of King Saul with regard to Agag were being reversed. The end result that flowed was a lot of blood. All of this was set in motion by Haman's edict. God's enemies were completely and totally defeated throughout the empire. Seventy-five thousand of them. In the span of a few days, the world as anyone knew it at that time was dramatically changed. Imagine that, 75,000 people killed in two days. Men, women, and children were destroyed. This is by far one of the bloodiest moments in biblical history. All of it at the hands of the Jews, and as a result, the Jews started a holiday that is still celebrated to this day called Purim, and we'll see more about that next week as we conclude Esther. Well, what can we glean from all of this? More than anything, we see that the enemies of God and His people will never stand. Those who sided with Haman were doomed for destruction. Little did Haman know that it wasn't just him, but over 75,000 others were being signed up to be destroyed when he issued his edict. And regardless of anyone's motives or why they were killing, from God's perspective, the message was clear. This is my judgment. And it comes at the hands of those who identify as God's people. We saw at the end of chapter 8, why, uh, whether they were serious or not, most of them likely were not. People knew at the very least that in order to save their lives, what did they have to do? They had to identify as the people of God. Well, how could that be, though? Given that God's own people are themselves as guilty and rebellious as those who are not God's people, how is it that if I identify as one of God's people that I might be saved, how can any of us stand in the presence of a just and holy God? When in our lives we've rebelled against God and against His people, and the things that we've said and the things that we've done, who will deliver us from the edict of death? that still stands against us in the heavenly courts. What we need is an Esther of our own. What we need is one who will put aside personal interests and safety and risk dignity and honor and even life itself in order that our case will be pled before the great God, the great King. Well, such a mediator is ours in Jesus Christ. 
The one who left the glories of heaven, who took on the form of a servant, not simply humiliating himself, but going all the way to death for us. Long before the day in which he will don a blood-soaked robe to go and wreak havoc on his enemies, he soaked his robe in his own blood to protect those who are his own people. God put his own son under the curse of holy war, and he cut him off because of our sin. As the prophet Isaiah predicted, he had no family, he had no descendants of his own. He was bruised for our transgressions, wounded for our iniquities, dishonored for our glory, and plunged into darkness that we who are rebellious sinners against him might see the light. You know, one of the amazing things we see in the text is this reversal that takes place. It's even mentioned in the text. Haman is replaced by Mordecai. The enemies of God are replaced in terms of strength and might and power and being offensive to being defensive. The great reversal takes place when once an enemy of the king is now made to be a friend of the king, is made to be on the side of the king. And that's exactly what happens when we become Christians, isn't it? Every Lord's Day when we gather, we are feasting and celebrating the great reversal of our eternal fate. We're celebrating the fact that Jesus, regardless of what faced him, was willing to come into this world and live the perfect life that we cannot live, to fulfill the entire law of God on our behalf, to go to the cross, to be cursed by hanging on a tree like Haman's sons. That if we put all of our faith and all of our trust and all of our hope in him, that we might be saved because he did what we could not do. He did what we were owed and he was raised from the dead that we too might defeat death and life and have life everlasting. Like the pagans of Esther's time, people still will go to church and identify with the covenant community for all kinds of different reasons. That hasn't changed. Just being in a church on Sunday is no evidence of our genuine status as belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have to ask ourselves more questions. Am I trusting in Christ's death in my place? Am I a genuine part of God's community today, or am I just saying that to supposedly save my own skin? If the answer to these profound questions is, is yes, then, there, th- then where is our joy and where is our, our peace? The Jews celebrated their deliverance even though they still lived in a hostile empire in which their fortunes could change at any moment as we have seen. How much more then should we celebrate as those who are members of the heavenly kingdom, as those who have been saved by God since Christ is our eternal fortune, we have been changed and all these things have been reversed irrevocably forever and ever. The heavenly decree, the heavenly edict is far stronger than the law of the Medes and the Persians. In no way can it be contradicted. In no way can it be taken down. There is no other edict that can be issued to countermand it. God's settled decree is this, that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No one and nothing in all of creation can ever separate us from the love of God. And so daily, daily we ought to celebrate our deliverance. Daily, we must have glorious joy in Christ 
the peace of Christ is in us, that victory has been secured for us. And we can look forward to the day when the end will indeed come, when we too will be able to sing with all of the redeemed saints to the praise of God the Father and to the risen Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is our great hope, the victory of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word and for the challenges of your word, for the hope given to us by your word. And Lord, while we read your word, sometimes it is hard for us to imagine these things taking place, but we trust that they have. We trust the history of the Bible, and we know that all of this is in place to show us something. More than anything, we recognize that you are the God of your people, and if one is yours, then you will protect them to the uttermost. And so we rest in you today. Come what may in this world, as the world and the flesh and the devil all seek to do battle against us day by day, we rest in you, knowing that all of our hope and our trust, as it is found in you, will be rewarded by your great and glorious proclamation that in you, by faith in Christ, there is no condemnation. And so we pray, Father, you would remind us of that great truth today, that we would go from here feasting and rejoicing in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.